You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Tuesday, March 20th, the Washington Post brought together pioneering researchers, business leaders, and elected officials for Transformers Artificial Intelligence. This live news event focused on advances in technology that are poised to reshape the way we live and work. In this segment, Peter Schwartz, Senior Vice President of Strategic Planning at Salesforce, Douglas Terrier, Acting Chief Technologist at NASA, and Mona Vernon, Chief Technology Officer at Thomson Reuters Labs, sat down with The Washington Post's Anna Rothschild to discuss how artificial intelligence is likely to affect the job market. They also talked about how key sectors will evolve to meet the new realities of these technological advances. Let's listen. Hello, everyone. Um, good morning. Um, I'm Anna Rothschild. I'm an on-air science reporter for The Washington Post, and I'm also the host of an upcoming science show from The Post called Anna's Science Magic Show Hooray, <laughs> um, which is a show, a science variety show geared for kids parents and um, <laughs> curious people <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> um, I am very honored to have these wonderful guests with me today. Um, I'd like to introduce Peter Schwartz. Uh, he's a futurist and senior vice president of strategic planning at Salesforce. Salesforce. Mona Vernon uh, is the Chief Technology Officer at Thomson Reuters Labs, and Douglas Terrier is the Acting Chief Technologist at NASA. So thank you all for being here. Um, and I'd like to remind you all that you can tweet your questions to us using the hashtag transformers. Um, so go for it and make them great. Um, so we're about to talk for half an hour about artificial intelligence and the future of work. But I think if you ask different scientists, they will actually each have different definitions of what they're talking about when they talk about artificial intelligence. So I'd actually like to start by sort of asking each of you, when we're talking about this, about AI and how it will transform work, what are you talking about? And maybe um, even give some examples from your own work of, uh, of, of how we're defining this. Well, look, uh, I, I think, uh, in fact, it was mentioned in the, uh, the, the panel uh, with the senators, who I thought were really good, by the way, this morning. I thought they were unusually well-informed and thoughtful. Uh, that having been said, uh, <laughs> what can I say? Uh, uh, having said that, uh, I was actually at the beginning of artificial intelligence research. I started my career at Stanford Research Institute. And then the idea was a top-down model of AI. Understand the brain and put it on a chip, and that will behave like a human brain. Uh, but the problem is, understand the brain, and it's taken us a very long time, and we've got a long way to go. The new model of artificial intelligence is bottoms up. That is, let the machine learn rather than teach it. And that now works. And so we are many, many, many instances where we can create the opportunities to use algorithms to make sense of data that actually then perform useful cognitive functions. That's what we mean by AI today, not the old model of something that looks like a brain put on a microchip. That's why Elon is wrong, by the way. <laughs> I was going to ask, um, do you guys have the same definition, at least for the purposes of the conversation we're having today? Um, I think so. I think the, the piece that um, is really important to bring up, which Peggy mentioned, is that this is the algorithms have got better for a confluence of, of um, trends like, but, like big data, and that's exactly it. We can train this bottom-up view, like Peter is saying, but it's not just 
magic. It's about bringing intelligent data, understanding that data, and bringing human expertise to validate those insights. So, you know, this whole conversation about why bias is happening, I'd argue is that folks forgot the scientific method. Like, there is a way to check your work and, and put some, some context around it. So I agree, but I think it's not just algorithm, it's the combination of the human, human expertise and the quality of the content that you feed the algorithm. And I would agree. I, I think, you know, really we should think of artificial intelligence as augmenting human efforts, not really something that replaces or is a substitute for. So if you think about the, certainly in our, in our world in space and in every field of technology, we have volume, veracity, and velocity of data that's just overwhelming for humans to deal with as we see more and more connected uh, smart devices and so on. We have that in, in, in our field as well. So we need machines to help us process that, those volumes of data into real information, into knowledge, into decisions that can help aid human decision making. And I think that's where artificial intelligence can really be an augmenting tool. Would you say then that the biggest sort of misconception about artificial intelligence today and how it applies to the future of work is thinking about it as a replacement for humans? Yeah, I think that's right. Look, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. What we're really talking about is augmented intelligence, making people more capable in more, most instances. Uh, your paper yesterday had a very good article on warehouses, mm -hmm. right, on FedEx, etc., who are putting robots alongside workers to make them more productive rather than replace them. And, and I think we see that. I think one of the great myths right now, for example, is about truck drivers, right? That we're going to eliminate all the truck drivers and taxi cab drivers and replace them with robots. Not true. Uh, first of all, we need more driving, more truck driving. Uh, we're moving to this delivery economy where in front of my house every day, at least a dozen trucks go by and half of them stop at my house. My wife's <laughs> well, my wife's a professional retail researcher, we call it. Uh, and, and, and at least a, a half of them stop at my house. Having said that, uh, we need more truck driving. And so the truck driver of tomorrow is actually going to rep, uh, behave like the uh, guys who fly remote piloted vehicles today. Outside of uh, Las Vegas, there's a building where a number of Air Force pilots are, go to work every morning and fly drones over Afghanistan and Syria and elsewhere. Uh, the truck driver of tomorrow will be like that. They may go out to their garage, get in their truck driving pod, pick up their first truck, uh pick up their load, put it on the freeway, headed toward Phoenix. They then may pick up the second load, do the same thing, headed toward Las Vegas, and so on. They'll drive it around the city streets, supplementing the AI on board, and the AI will drive down the freeway. So they'll be driving five trucks, not one. And in fact, a company in Las Vegas called Starsky Robotics is actually building it right now. Uh, they think they can do 10 trucks. I think that's ambitious, but let's say, let's say only five trucks. So more productivity, They get the truck driver goes home and gets to sleep with their spouse at night, uh, gets to know their kids, doesn't suck fumes all day, and doesn't die in accident. <laughs> That's the truck driver tomorrow, and the skill set is Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> <laughs> So, Mona, I know that you have maybe some different ideas about which sectors are going to be most impacted. Do you think truck driving and that sort of um, sector is going to be most impacted, or, or what's your... So, I'm going to focus on the sector I know. Um, Thompson Reuters serves knowledge workers, and, and I agree with Douglas that it's about augmenting them. In fact, I talk about giving knowledge workers superpowers. So, let me give you a concrete example. Uh, interestingly, data privacy has been in the news in the last couple of days, and one of the challenge for uh, data privacy experts in large companies is that they're dealing with an increasingly complex data privacy regulation environment and a proliferation of information. So we did a survey of a thousand data privacy experts and 44% of them felt 
uh, that they might fail to comply because it's getting increasingly complex. So we uh, developed a tool combining the you know human expertise we have with our uh, legal experts, the quality of data, and feeding into algorithms to come up with a tool to give data privacy experts this augmentation, this superpower to make sure that, for instance, uh, they don't miss information that they would otherwise uh, be looking for. So there's a discovery feature that's powered by Watson and combines our data that helps them make sure they're done doing their research and make give them that uh, feeling of confidence. So I think that translates into knowledge work. Knowledge workers are going to get superpower with this combination of AI uh, trained by the right data and validated by experts, and they're just going to be doing more and more exciting things and perhaps do less of the really boring tasks. So it is similar to what Peter is talking about, but I think it definitely is going to happen. It's already happening for knowledge work. Is there a new skill set that knowledge workers will need to gain in order to do their jobs, or is this just really going to take away the more like tedious stuff? That's how I feel. Do they need to learn to play Grand Theft Auto? <laughs> uh, no, I think it's, it's I, I don't, you know, I, if you really think about designing um, user experiences that, that truly understand how uh, lawyer work or uh, data privacy expert works, then what they're getting is a tool that gives them superpower. They don't need new skills. Rather, they're not going to do the tedious part of their work and really focus on what they're really good at. Yeah, look, I, I, oh, sorry. I just wanted to pause because the iPad seems to be missing. And oh, it's I, right here. It's oh. right here. Wonderful. Thank there you, you so much. <laughs> so, sorry, go on. Yeah, look, I, I, I think uh, the, the, the point was just made that I think is really quite central. Uh, I, there are going to be jobs. The jobs are going to change. New skills are going to be needed. So the central task we really face is an educational and retraining task. And I think that's the single most important thing. Uh, I, I'm really not at all worried about whether there are going to be good jobs out there and whether there are going to be opportunities for people. Uh, history supports that. Look, in 1950, we had 60 million people working. We've got a 160 million people working in the United States. We created 100 million jobs. We're very good at that. The real question is that skills retraining. And here I think the private sector is very important. I think because most of those people work for us. So our responsibility is retraining, reskilling, providing the tools for people to be able to actually do that in their jobs, where they work, uh, the opportunity for that 50-year-old truck driver who didn't play Grand Theft Auto <laughs> to be able to actually be able to drive that new truck. So I think this is, this is a really, really important point that this is not something, by the way, that we kind of talk about it like it's it's about to happen. It's important to realize it is happening and it's gradually going to continue to happen. And, and if you think about the jobs that we have today, probably half the jobs that, that young people are going into didn't exist when I went to college. And that's going to be true when you look into the future. So yes, there will be jobs that will, will change and the skill set will change, but there will also be myriad jobs that will be created that don't exist today. So I think there's a lot of opportunity. And I think Peter's point about retraining is really important. And we need to recognize that probably the biggest difference in the way we think about careers today is you go to college, you get one skill set, you're good for a career for life. That is probably a different model where we're going to have to update our skills as the technology continues to change. Because I said, it's going to be a continuous process. Do you think then we need to actually change how, like, how our education system in order to adapt throughout our lives? Yes. I mean, this is about learning, relearning, and relearning. Fortunately, one of the interesting technology trends that's going on is a massive investment in what we call ed tech. 
educational technologies to enable people to learn in context, in, in their work, in their schools, at home, etc. And we're spending about $15 billion in investment in the private sector investing in new, these new technologies. We in Salesforce are investing in something we call Trailhead, allowing our customers and anyone else to learn about the technology at, on their own, at their own pace. And I think that's the kind of investment that every company is going to need to make. And I think one of the things that, that we, we should point out is that a lot of people think you have to be directly involved in one of these sectors to see the benefit, right? So if you take the work that NASA has invested, for example, over the last decades in artificial intelligence or computers, and if you think about you know, how I got here today with a GPS on my phone, how you operate when you're driving to go visit your relatives, we really all benefit in many ways, and other sectors of the economy benefit from the introduction of these technologies in, in, in other fields. I actually wanted to ask you about this in particular because we all know that there's so much NASA technology that ends up being repurposed for not space travel, obviously, um, or other space you know, exploration. Um, and now we're using it in our iPads or in our kitchens. Um, so are there particular projects that NASA is working on now that you can talk about that um, you think will have a big impact on all of our lives in the next five, 10 years? So absolutely, and again, I think it's important to point out this has been the case for some time, right? So the, the first miniaturized computers were developed during the Apollo era, which Peter worked on, to um, to create the the capability to do all the processing and augment the human capability to do all the orbital mechanics uh, con, uh, computations, which humans couldn't do. And we continue to do that as we push humans further out into space. One example that I think is really interesting is that we, in the search for um, planets, Earth-like planets, right, we have to use a lot of machine learning and artificial intelligence to process the volumes of data. No human can look at that volume of data and sort out the patterns in it. So we use artificial intelligence to do that. That same, uh, those same algorithms are used in any big data set when we try to look for patterns. Um, you'd be surprised to learn. So for example, we use um, th that, that same kind of processing in doing Landsat data where we look at, at crops uh, around the country, where we look at how to, repro how to reprogram airplane flight paths, that those same algorithms are applied there, and in a myriad of other cases. And I think uh, to add to Douglas's point, this idea of, I mean, there's still a lot of jobs that we haven't created. So let's, let's give an example. Uh, you know, companies in the private sectors have hired a lot of data scientists that do usually really well that front end thinking about what is the first use of an algorithm. I'd argue that we need industrial process control through the full life cycle. How do you, you know, qualify the quality of the data, your assumption base? How do you then check how the model is improved and evolving over time? time, great set of jobs that probably can be created and, and are fundamentally going to be important to industrialize this technology and deploy it more widely. How, um, how can a company then sort of prove to its customers, to its consumers, that um, its algorithm is working equitably and fairly? I mean, and, and we don't need to talk about how to actually prevent bias in, in the data. I mean, how can a company express this to the people they're serving? I, I think you've gone to, I think, perhaps one of the most difficult issues. Uh, I'm not worried about AIs taking over and runaway robots, but this is a real issue. And the reason it's a, an especially difficult issue is because as the algorithm gets more and more sophisticated, it learns, becomes more complex, and frankly, very difficult to unpack why it made the particular recommendations. And if it's made a recommendations that you get credit for your house and you don't, she wants to know why. And that is a challenge of 
unpacking that algorithm. And let me say, I don't think it's easy. I think simply opening the box and looking inside isn't gonna tell you very much because in fact, the algorithm is not the one we started with. It's evolved itself. So I do think this is a bit of a challenge for the industry to try and figure out the rules for algorithmic transparency. So the way we manage that is we stay really close in the innovation labs with cutting edge technology research. Uh, for example, that exact topic Peter talked about is being studied at MIT by uh, the AI lab and the C-cell. And I think there is a role to continuously ask those questions, but also work really closely with the researchers that are trying to unpack these difficult questions. And I think it's important to say that consumers have a little more power than you might think in this as well, right? So when you have humans making these decisions in the current systems, we have choices. And, and in a free market, we're able to be, you know, choose which, who we trust, who we don't trust. And as Peter said, it's going to be more difficult because of the complexity of the algorithms. But at the end of the day, uh, I, I'm confident that the, the market forces will, uh, providers that provide the capability that consumers are looking for will, will rise to the top. And, and remember, it is likely that in the end, that as we get very good at this, the algorithm will actually be less biased than human beings. Right. Uh, uh, the algorithm won't be racist. It won't have attitudes about men and women. It'll look, be fairly objective. And look, you know, the, 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 the issue was raised in the very first panel about the accident that just happened in Tempe. It's important to remember that on that same day that that happened, uh, there were probably 99 humans killed by other humans in accidents. So it was 91, 99 to 1 in favor of the machine. Yeah. Right. That's, a, that's a super important point, um, and, and I think we're always going to be concerned if there's any, any software glitch. You know, we're always concerned about any, certainly, tragedy of, of human life. Um, but I think that, that you have to assume that the benefits far outweigh the potential dangers. Well, what do you say, and I know this was brought up earlier, what do you say when people like Elon Musk say that AI is more dangerous than uh, nukes, was it? Yeah. Yeah, well, someday, maybe. Right, we're a long way from that understanding of the brain sufficient to give uh, an algorithm, a robot, the kind of autonomy and capacity to make judgments that a human being has and to do really evil things. We got a lot of bad people to deal with long before we get yeah. to bad robots. <laughs> and, and speaking of bad people, I think it's, it, you know, that, that statement's an interesting statement because if you unpack it, yes, there are things that are very dangerous today, but we have, we have systems in place and, and responsible uh, legislators and, and governments that control those things. And we need to have the same kind of uh, process going forward with artificial intelligence. Anna, do you want to um, I'm not adding to that. <laughs> <laughs> Switching gears a little bit, um, so much of just our culture generally is sort of forged at the workplace. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how in the future as AI changes what jobs exist, where you're actually doing your job, how, that, how you think that might change our society generally. Well, look, we have, we have a great example uh, that actually just recently played out in, in Michigan with Steelcase Furniture. Uh, Steelcase is one of the big manufacturers of, of uh, office furniture. I wouldn't be surprised if everybody here is sitting on a Steelcase chair. <laughs> might be possible. Uh, and in the 1990s, as rising labor costs grew, uh, Steelcase moved a lot of those jobs from making furniture to Mexico. But what's happened in recent years is they're now bringing a lot of them back to Michigan and they're pairing workers with robots. The machines are doing the heavy movement and holding in place. The human beings are doing the fine work and so on. And so what you've done is upgrade those jobs make them more skilled, pay them better. They've brought back about 80% of the jobs. They've lost a few, but they're better, higher quality jobs. And what that's telling us is that in many, many instances, some of the more painful, difficult, physical, not only boring, but things that actually wear on workers, that bring them down over the decades, actually are 
going to be dealt with by the machines. Those areas where human judgment, skill, refinement, capability, control are required. Actually, teamwork. The most important skill for a human being is human empathy, the ability to work with other people. It isn't software programming. It is that capacity for collaboration. That's the skill we most need to develop because that's what will be uniquely human. I agree, and I think the it's really for me. There's this. Um, there's a couple of things. One is that if you're a knowledge worker, right? So if you're a lawyer, uh, you work in finance, or basically your your way of making money is using your brain. It's going to be a basis for being competitive to be augmented by these tools. It, you will see that happen across industries. So not having it is, is being left behind. The other piece is to build really useful AI tool. It fundamentally requires rethinking how we think about design. And uh, I've been really excited to, to, to think about this topic, which is how do you design useful tools to help knowledge workers be more effective? And, and that's not something that today a robot can do. So this one is the adoption of those tools is going to become table stake and a basis for competition. So it will change the workplace for knowledge workers. And the second, for those of us that are building those tools, being really able to be empathic and bring a design thinking approach to it is going to be a critical aspect to get those tools adopted. Are there particular um, things that you think we should be doing then to foster these, I, I know this is kind of a silly thing to say, but to foster uh, thinking about empathy in the workplace in order to you know, create people who can work better with AI in the future? Well, look, you know, uh, the, the book Emotional <coughs> Intelligence a number of years ago by Dan Goldman, I think, was really quite a profound shift that is to recognize that intelligence also has its emotional components and that it can be developed, it can be trained, it can be tested for, and you can actually work with your own workforce to make them more emotionally intelligent and therefore much more productive. So I think we actually do have the tools uh, to be able to make that human workforce much more capable of collaborating with other humans using machines. So it's, it's, it's really interesting when you think about how far we've come in such a short period of time. One of the things that Alan Turin in the 50s proposed this, this test for AI, which is you can't distinguish the machine from a, a human being, right? So that's a really interesting concept, not necessarily the way we think about it today, but it's important when you think about this emotional relationship. So this is the first generation that, that's coming up now that will live and work among intelligent machines as an integral part of their team. And I think that has profound implications in society and in the way our workplace operates. We have a, a situation at NASA which is, was for many years now, we've had, uh, we're, we're again extending human capability through artificial um, intelligence and robots on Mars or through our observatories in space. We, we are very much considered those machines as part of the team. And the way the team interacts with that, it's been really interesting to watch how that's evolved over time. And, and I think as we get more sophisticated in machines, we'll build in that empathy and that human-like quality in the machine to help that relationship work better. I would love to know a little bit more about how the people who are actually working with these machines, how, what, whether they're ascribing human emotion to them at this point? So I'll, I'll tell you a really interesting story. I, I work primarily in the, for most of my career in the human spaceflight arena. And when we have a launch or we have a, a dynamic event, there's a lot of emotion in the control room because of the concern about human life. I had the opportunity to be out at uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab when we were landing one of the Curiosity rovers, one of the rovers on Mars. And the tension and the hope and the prayers and the emotion in that room were just as palpable because of the connection that people had with that machine they had invested decades of their life in designing. So yeah, it's very much a real relationship. In fact, that Mars lander, the vehicle that came in, 
that was one of the great AI achievements of engineering, one of the all-time greats, and they managed to pull it off the first time, the only time it was ever done. It was one of the great achievements by NASA. Great. The, the thing that's sort of complicated, though, is the minute that we start kind of ascribing emotion to a machine, this is where we get into the territory that I think you know, scares people. And and I just wonder... Oh, we used to name our cars. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was a car guy when I was a kid, right? And people named their cars Betsy and Bill and stuff like that. And we, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, we've had these kinds of relationships with machines that we shared. We probably didn't name our washing machines, but, you know, our cars had kind of character to yeah, them. I, and they identified with who we were. How many people have, you know, hit their computer when it was given trouble, right? Yeah, you know. The computer actually doesn't care. That's about you. So I think yeah, but that's just to fix it. <laughs> well, it actually doesn't, right? but, but, but it makes us feel better. And, and the point is that the, the emotional component is actually not a function of the machines. This is not something we need to worry about the machine. This is actually our, our issue that we need to, to deal with. And let's just add to Douglas's point earlier. This is not, I, I, I don't think we're sitting at a, at a change. It's a continuous ev evolution, right? Like many of us have had components of AI technology in our products in the last 25 years. It just so happens that for some reason there is an excitement around that buzzword today because of how mature it's getting. But it has, it has been an, a slow evolution. Your iPad is powered by AI. It was powered by AI five years ago. We just talked about big data and the cloud and not necessarily this. What, so, so what that means is that we have a continuous opportunity to get used to the more powerful tool that are augmenting us. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And I think if you, if you look at you know, very, very um, simple things, when you push that button, it says potato on your microwave. That machine's doing a lot of sensing, <laughs> a lot of decisions about what time to, when you hit the brake on your car, like hundreds of times per second, the car is measuring the rotation speed of the wheel, making decision. You're not actually controlling that brake. The machine's doing that for you, and, and we get used to these things, as, sure. as, as, as Peter said, because it, the outcome is better for us that we stop quicker and more safely. Uh, I'm, I'm a pilot. Uh, yesterday I flew here, I didn't fly my own plane here, but an AI flew me here, except for about 20 minutes, the, the takeoff and the landing, and the AI could have done that, but having said that, the autopilot flew the plane across country. Every one of us does that all the time, and we never think about it. Uh, so I completely agree. We, this is a continuum that we have been moving toward over a long time. Um, we only have a few minutes left, and I would love to talk about the impact of AI sort of internationally. Uh, um, so, big deal. Yeah, so first of all, I'm curious to know how you think um, AI will sort of transform industry in the developing world in the next few years? Well, look, I, first of all, I think this is a technology that is increasingly accessible to many people. Mm -hmm. So, one, you know, it used to be a thing that existed in the laboratory, but many companies, Amazon, ourselves, Microsoft, Google, are all providing the tools for the public to be able to use. And that means in places like Africa, Southeast Asia, Latin America, there are young academics, young startups actually picking up these tools and inventing new ways of, for example, distributing medicines in Africa using drones and AI to get to the incredibly remote locations that they wouldn't have been able to otherwise. And so you're seeing this wave of young entrepreneurs that are actually picking up the new tools and creating new kinds of products and services that would not have been possible otherwise. Yeah, it's a, that's a really great great point. And I think we even at NASA, for example, one of the things we have is, you know, we have outposts where we're putting humans, we're trying to put humans all the way up at Mars, so we need to put a lot of intelligence that normally would reside in a control room here on Earth. We need to make that available, whether it's doctors, you know, medicine, um, technical information, so on 
in artificial intelligence system because of the, the light time. That same technology is available to remote medicine, to austere areas where people are separated by great distances to enable them to have access to all the technology. And I think in many ways, just uh, this technology in general is a great equalizer internationally for particularly underdeveloped countries that don't have the traditional industrial infrastructure. They can leapfrog that and jump right into this arena. I think we, I agree. I think the, the way to think about it is under the umbrella of AI is the, the, the maturity of a set of digital technologies that now can really help emerging markets leapfrog. So we talked about mobile, social, which is a lot of data and connecting people, uh, the proliferation of data. AI is that component that brings it all together and, and really creates digital first solutions that are truly innovative across many, many sectors. And look, learning in the developing world is the, like for the, us, but even more important in that part of the world to actually see the opportunities to develop. And the new learning technologies, universally distributed, make a really remarkable opportunity. Wikipedia is the greatest anti-poverty tool yeah. ever created. Yeah. Any kid on the planet with a device like this now has all the world's knowledge available to them. So I, I think we're in an era that enables AI to enable education, learning, and productivity all over the planet. And it, do you think it will help, like, connect the kid with the iPad maybe someplace in Africa to you? Absolutely. I think it is. Already, I think it already yeah. is. The social networks are, they're borderless, right? And, and, and I think Peter's point is really important that it, it's, again, a great equalizer. Kids anywhere can have access to all the world's information. And that is a remarkable, um, remarkable tool and step forward. Great. Well, we are about at the end of our time. I just want to thank you all so much for being here. This was a great discussion. Um, we are going to take a quick break, um, but uh, the next part of our program will begin uh, momentarily. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.